Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 41 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 41 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this, as long as I give you a brief description of what the show's all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I am also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd, and each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s, and first talk about my opinion on the song, and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics, and in the second part of the show, I dive into the history of that exact same song. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the studio musicians on the track, what studio that song was recorded at, and what labels released on the year it was recorded and the year it was released and the month it was released. All that is in the second part of this show. Now, before we move on with this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to touch bases with you guys on uh, quite a few things. Um, one is that I went to some really cool uh, and pretty interesting 60 music related events uh, last week. Um, one of those events was... This was a very special one for me. I went to the 60th anniversary of the Motown record label uh, show uh, taping event that was happening in downtown L.A. And for me, that was very, very special because I got to see some really huge artists. I got to see Stevie Wonder and I got to see Smokey Robinson. And let me tell you something, that was definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience for me. I mean, that was just so special and just so awesome, just being able to get to see those people um, perform live. I've never seen any um, of those artists live, and that was just holy crap. That was amazing. That was definitely a very uh, special experience for me. Um Fortunately, didn't get to meet anybody because I there were some legendary people there, but I didn't want to lose my seat because the people that were sitting right next to me were taking my seats, or they were no that they were actually taking other people's seats, but I didn't want to risk losing my seat, so I just kind of stayed put to where I was. So, but um, but yeah, um, I haven't really done any Motown songs yet because I feel like a lot of people in my age group are already familiar with a lot of Motown stuff, so. Um, I'm holding off on that until probably until we get to around the Eddie Holland interview, which will happen like late late April, early May. So, um, but yeah, the other interesting event I went to that was super, um, you know, um, different was that I went and saw a '60s cover band perform at a venue in Simi Valley. Now that was interesting because I'd never really seen a '60s cover band. The only, only other time I saw that was when I saw a British Invasion tribute band open up for Gary Puckett, um, you know, which was last year. But this year was just, it was mainly just all kinds of 60 stuff. I mean, they did lots of songs. But one th- couple of things I want to touch base with you on is that most of the people in the in the audience were, were pretty old. I mean, 
most of them were my parents' age, and most of the people in my band were my parents' age, and I just, and because of that, I felt like their age was showing within the music. I mean, they just didn't, I mean, I, I want to be honest with you, I feel like those songs from the specific era, if they were done by a group of really young musicians, people in my age group, like late 20s, early 30s, or early 20s, I feel like they would sound exactly like the records and even better because, you know, to be honest with you, all that music that I grew up listening to, the all the songs that you you might love too. I mean, you might be listening to this podcast and you might love all these songs as well. Most of those guys doing that music back then were really young. They were around my age, like early 20s or late 20s, early 30s. So, you know... And because the band I saw, most of the people in the group were not in that age group. Their age was showing within the music, and even they weren't really good. I, I got, I gotta keep, I gotta, I gotta give them props. I mean, the only person that was kind of lacking was the drummer, but everyone else was really good. I mean, the sound wasn't that great because I couldn't really hear lead vocals, but everything else was pretty solid. I just feel like these songs would sound even more like the records and even better if they were done by younger musicians. That's all, and I might want to try to put together like a 60s night at a venue like the hotel cafe or um uh, harvard stone or one of those places and possibly do something of that nature or, or lucky strike but anyways um the one other thing i want to touch bases with you guys on before and this will be the last thing i'll say before we get to the episode is that um a member of a group called the monkeys died his name was peter torque and he was in and if you don't know who he is he was an original member of the band and uh, now, as you guys probably already noticed by now, I haven't done a song by the Monkees, um, mainly because there's been so many other groups I've been trying to get to lately, and you know I just haven't gotten to doing a Monkees song yet. But I guarantee you, I will definitely do a song by them. Might be coming up within the next couple of weeks, so you know keep your eyes peeled on for that. But anyways, the main reason why I'm mentioning him's passing is that. I'm I I don't I'm sure hopefully you guys are paying attention last week's episode but I specifically said that I didn't necessarily want to uh you know bring in a different person every week and turn this podcast into an interview podcast but I do want to do more interviews from guys from this era and one of the main reasons as to why I want to uh you know interview more people from this era specifically the 60s is that I'm sure you guys have picked this up by now just by the few people I have interviewed for this podcast, but most people that were around at that time and most people that were, you know, making music back then and were, you know, in their 20s and 30s, if they're still alive today, and, and by the way, a lot of them are not, a lot of them are gone, but if they are still alive today, in which a lot of them are, most of them are in their mid-70s or late-70s and early-80s. Okay, and one thing I wanted to piggyback on with that is that, as you guys probably know by now, most people don't live past their 80s, or, you know, it's very rare that people live past their 80s, and that is the age range when most people, you know, pass away, is like late 70s, early 80s. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't want to miss an opportunity to interview um, somebody from that era because I just didn't pull the trigger, didn't contact them, and didn't do the interview, and then not be able to do it anymore because they passed away. 
Okay, so I really want to try to interview as many people from this decade as possible before they die. You know, because that way I can get their stories documented. And that way I can get their perspective on this decade of music and the history behind all these songs. So that way it's on, it's documented and it will live on forever. It'll live on way before, way after I die and way after they die as well. So um, that's why I want to try to interview as many people as possible to show you guys, you know, what the music business was like back then from their perspective and just straight from the horse's mouth. Cause I, heck I wasn't even there when these songs were, uh, you know, made and they're brand new. So, you know, what better perspective to get about 60 music from than from someone who was there. So, um, just to do that. And also just to get their stories on paper, because one thing you got to understand is that once they die, their stories will die as well. So, um, you know, I want to try to get their stories about these really classic songs documented so that way, you know, they'll it'll live on forever and you guys will be able to get to experience that as well. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's song and artist in today's episode, which is Major Lands, and the name of the song is called Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Okay, so what made this record so unique was the city where it was recorded in. And what made its own sound so unique is where it was recorded. And you might, one question you might have is, where the heck was this song recorded? Because if you know much about music history, specifically with rhythm and blues and soul, a lot of times your go-to cities that made a big impact on those genres would be Detroit, um, Memphis, and Muscle Shoals, Alabama. With Atlantic and a few other labels you know, being in New York City and with uh, Muscle Shoals and, you know, artists like Aretha Franklin and Solomon Burke and the Drifters being on Atlantic and also Stacks coming out of Memphis with Sam and Dave and Otis Redding, an artist of that nature who were also, you know, distributed by Atlantic. And, uh, you know, Detroit, you know, with uh, Motown, obviously, in the Supremes, Four Top Temptations and Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and stuff like that. Um, you know, um, but and Muscle Shoals, you know, getting you know uh, artists being signed to Atlantic from being recording recorded Muscle Shoals. But anyways, so um, this song was recorded in neither any of those cities. In fact, this song was recorded in other than the windy city known as Chicago, Illinois. And to really understand what kind of impact Chicago had on the music business, we have to take a look at all the different genres of music that came out of there and who were the important people that were behind those genres and the record companies that helped get those genres into the mainstream marketplace alongside the British invasion bands and the bro building and the pop rock stuff. Okay, so if you're any sort of aficionado from when it comes to music history, you might think of Chicago as one of those places where blues, one of the truest American forms of American music, by the way, finally became a mainstream genre music with artists such as Buddy Guy and Willie Dixon, Holly Wolf, and Tommy Tucker becoming huge in their own right, you know, coming from Chicago. And that, in return, influenced specific British Invasion fans that took that genre of music, which is blues, and put their own spin on it and made it popular in their home country. And also bringing it back to the States. And by the way, a couple of these British Invasion bands, specifically the R. Birds and the Rolling Stones, 
did this, just to name a few. And both of these groups, by the way, would also wind up recording in Chicago as well later on. But that's another story for another podcast. We'll say that for the British Invasion one. But um, Chicago wasn't just home to the blues, though. Because also Chicago had its own brand of white pop rock. And they had their own pop rock bands that created their own version of the amazing pop rock sounds that were happening in the U.K. and in L.A. and New York as well. These groups included the American Breed, the New Colony Six, and the Shadows of Night, and the Buckinghams too. And that leads me to say that I actually got to talk to someone uh, you know, in this podcast who was a lead singer of one of these bands, and they recorded their first hit in Chicago, and all the original members are from Chicago, and that group was called the Buckinghams. Um, there and there was a couple of other groups like the Ides of March and the band Chicago, but they hadn't quite, you know, had hits yet. I mean, they would have hits at the very, you know, end of the sixties, beginning of the seventies. But in the sixties, it was all about the American Breed, New Colony Six, and Shadows of Night. Now, most of these groups appealed to the white teenagers of America who were obsessed with the British invasion bands and the L.A. and New York groups and wanted more songs in the vein of garage pop rock that was either raw and dirty and bluesy like the Shadows of Night or slick and sophisticated and punchy like the American Breed of the New Colony Six and the Buckinghams. And there was one other group from that era that had some regional hits in Chicago that was around the same time as all those groups I just mentioned called the Crying Shames, but... They never really had any hits outside of the Windy City, unfortunately. All their hits were, you know, local to, you know, the Chicago. I don't think they had any hits nationally. But along with these other genres of music uh, that were coming out of Chicago, um, the city also specialized in putting out their own version of American R&B soul. And one that was very distinct and one that couldn't really be confused with other soul genres coming from the city, such as New York, Detroit, Memphis, and Muscle Shoals. But I will say that Chicago pulled from other cities in terms of soul music, such as New York and Detroit. But let's talk about what made Chicago so unique in terms of soul music first. Okay, so the big distinction that Chicago had versus the other cities that were really uh, specialized in helping develop soul music such as Detroit, Memphis, and Muscle Shoals, and L.A. too, is that most of these cities I just mentioned, you know, were dominated by just one or two record labels. You know, I mean, Detroit with Motown, I mean, Detroit was basically a one-label city. I mean, Motown was the biggest record label in that city at that time. And Memphis mostly was Stack's fault and uh, Muscle Shoals with Atlantic. And, you know, the different, the big difference between those cities and Chicago is that Chicago's soul, on the other hand, was the product of many different labels. And not all of them were specifically based in Chicago. Some were based in New York. and But while some of these labels were not based in Chicago... Um, they oftentimes picked up masters from songs recorded in Chicago, and they also had offices based in Chicago, and when that happened, they oftentimes had A&R Man, which, by the way, was uh, industry lingo, which stands for artists and repertoire, and these guys were in charge of discovering and signing unknown talent. Um, that would be based in that area. You know, they would hire A&R guys that were located 
in Chicago. And even though Chicago Soul was a product of many different labels, here were the three most important three or four people that helped shape that genre of music, which is Chicago Soul. And those people were Billy Davis, Carl Davis, Curtis Mayfield, Johnny Pate, and Riley Hampton. And while we're at it, let's talk about the labels that helped shape the Chicago Soul sound. Okay, so the first label that really put Chicago on the map in terms of soul music was VJ Records. VJ was a label owned by a couple named Vivian Carter and James C. Bracken, who, by the way, both black. VJ was one of the very first labels founded by African Americans in the mid-50s, by the way, before Motown. And, uh, and by the way, their name, VJ, is V for Vivian and J for James. And while the company mainly put out blues and doo-wop in the mid to late 50s, the label became the epicenter of soul music when they signed the Impressions and they had their first hit with a soul record called Fear, Precious Love in 1958. Um, the Impressions were a vocal group that originally consisted of Sam Gooden and Richard and Arthur Brooks and Jerry Butler. Butler sang lead on the song and not long after the single became a hit, Butler and Richard and Arthur Brooks left the group and Butler started his own career as a solo artist and Curtis Mayfield was brought in to replace him and the group's main lead singer and uh, he brought in his friend Fred Cash to join the group and they continued on as a trio with Fred Cash, Sam Gooden, and Curtis Mayfield. And uh, after that, Jerry Butler became a very successful solo artist and Curtis co-wrote his first big hit, He Will Break Your Heart, and sang back up on it as well. And Calvin Carter, who, by the way, was an A&R man for VJ Records, uh, would go on to produce, uh, also co-wrote the song, co-produced it. And he would go on to produce many big soul hits for the VJ label, including Antenna's Kiss by Betty Everett and Raindrops by D. Clark. Well, all right, let's talk about Curtis Mayfield and Carl Davis. Because once Curtis Mayfield became the Impressions lead singer, he also became the group's main songwriter. And their first hit was that was recorded independently without a label, Gypsy Woman, was later picked up by ABC Paramount Records, and it would eventually hit the top 20 in 1961. By the way, that song was also turned out by a bunch of different labels because they simply thought a black group singing a song about a gypsy wasn't going to fly in 1961 in America. But then one specific executive at ABC Paramount thought otherwise and decided to release it. And they soon became signed to ABC Paramount Records after that song became a hit. But now I've talked a little bit about Curtis Mayfield. Let's talk about Kirk Carl Davis. Um, Carl Davis was another really important figure in Chicago soul music. And he first started out as an A&R man for G VJ Records. And this happened because he produced a number one record for an artist named Gene Chandler that was uh, distributed by VJ called Duke of Earl. That was first released on Net Records, then it got picked up by VJ for national distribution, and it became a huge smash in the late 1961, early 1962. Um, Carl Davis spent a little bit of time producing for VJ in 62, but he was soon let go uh, from the company, and he then became the head of A&R at a label called OK Records, a subsidiary of Columbia Records. OK was a New York-based label that had just opened up offices in Chicago, and they appointed Carl Davis as their first Chicago-based A&R man. Now, as an A&R man for OK Records, the most commercially successful signing he had on that label was a guy named Major Lance, the artist we did last week. 
And Major Lance knew Curtis Mayfield because they used to sing in the choir together in high school. And also, Jerry Butler went to the same school as well. Wednesday became friends when the impressions of recording songs for ABC Paramount. At the same time, Curtis Mayfield was also giving any songs that he did not want to record with the impressions to Major Lance. And one of those songs that he wound up recording was a song I did last week, which is mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. But now that we're on the subject of this particular song, let's talk about some of the behind-the-scenes details of it and where it was recorded and who were the musicians on it. Okay, so in Chicago in the 60s, there were three main studios where the majority of these classic soul songs came out of and they were recorded in. The first one was Universal Recording Studios. And that was a studio founded by a guy named Bill Putman who later went on to later moved out to L.A. in, in the 60s. But... That is where most of the VJ hits are recorded, including the ones recorded by Jerry Butler and Betty Everett and Gene Chandler. And most of the ABC Paramount hits recorded by the Impressions are also recorded at Universal. And Chess Studios. Now, this is a studio owned by Chess Records, where artists such as Billy Stewart and Fontella Bass and Etta James recorded at. And Columbia Studios. And this is where was recorded at along with some other Carl Davis-produced songs that later became hits, including Jackie Wilson's Higher and Higher, was a more notable one and most of Major Lance's other hits. Um, now, this, now, as far as who's playing on the record, the song features a core group of studio musicians that also played on many Impressions hits, since both the Impressions backed up Major Lance on vocals on most of most of his hits, and both artists shared the same arranger, Johnny Pate, and co-producer, which who is Curtis Mayfield, along with Carl Davis. Now, the band on this major Lance record was as follows. They had Maury Watson and Paul Serrano on trumpet, Morris Ellis and John Van on trombone, Cliff Davis, who, by the way, was Carl Davis's brother on sax, and the guitar players were Curtis Mayfield and Phil Upchurch and Kermit Chandler and Billy Butler, on piano was either Ken Boyd or Floyd Morris. Now, the bass player and drummer were two guys that were later going to want to be in a band called Earth, Wind, and Fire, Louis Satterfield and Maurice White. And this particular song was originally done in a much slower tempo and had a more serious philosophical lyrics, but Carl Davis was the one that told Curtis to change the lyric and tempo and speed up the song, and his advice ultimately caused the song to become a huge hit and the song was originally recorded in August of 1963 but it wasn't released until December of that year as a follow-up to Hey Little Girl which is a follow-up to Major Lance's first big hit which was The Monkey Time. One interesting note is about this particular song is that it made into the top 10 in January of 1964. A month later the Beatles had their first number one hit with I Want to Hold Your Hand while this song was still in the top 10. Even though the song was his last top 10 record, he managed to have some decent-sized follow-up hits with a matador and rhythm. After Major Lance's career took a big fat nosedive, Carl Davis left OK to become an A&R man for Brunswick Records, and he also became responsible for bringing Jackie Wilson to Chicago for a string of comeback hits starting with Whispers Getting Louder, and he also formed a subsidiary label that had some big hits on both the pop and R&B charts for Brunswick 
called Descartes, which had Bart Backlund and Tyrone Davis. Also, a couple more interesting little-known facts about Curtis Mayfield, the guy that wrote, is that he was Jimi Hendrix's biggest musical influence in the 60s. I mean, just listen to Have You Ever Been to Electric Ladyland and the Impressions song from the mid-60s, and you'll definitely hear the influence Mayfield had on Hendrix. I mean, it's just undeniable. And he was also one of the first black songwriters to talk about the civil rights movement and bringing gospel and, re- and religion into songs and have big commercial hits on the pop charts with these semi-religious, very um, you know, out politically outspoken civil rights songs. But he did it in such a subtle way that he never made any explicit, obvious references to what was going on at that time in black America. But anyone that heard those songs knew that that is exactly what he was referring to in songs like Keep On Pushing and People Get Ready and, of course, Choice of Colors. Now, before we end this podcast, I want to talk about one more label that also helped shape the sound of Chicago soul. And this label was also in direct competition with the Motown in the mid-60s, and it's obvious with some of their soul records from the mid-60s that they were trying to copy the Motown sound, but also trying to get as many hits as them. And that was Chess Records. Chess was a label founded by two white brothers, Leonard and Phil Chess, and the label already had their feet deep in rock and roll and blues with artists such as Chuck Berry and Bo Dudley and Helen Wolf and Willie Dixon. And by the end of the 50s and the start of the 60s, um, the label didn't really get into uh, the soul music game until around 1961 when they hired an A&R man in Billy Davis. Now, Billy Davis had previously co-wrote a bunch of songs with Motown founder Barry Gordy for Jackie Wilson in the late 50s and early 60s. And when he decided to not become a part of Motown in Detroit and moved to Chicago, he became an A&R head for chess. The distinction that Chess had with other Chicago labels is that they had their own studios, and any artist that was signed to Chess recorded in their studios. And the studio would also be used by other non-Chess artists as well in the mid-60s, and the first hit of any size to be characterized as Chicago sold to come out of Chess was At Last by Etta James, with its less string arrangement modeled the R&B singles that were coming out of New York at that time. But anyways, when Motown became a huge hitmaker in 1964, so much that it had taken up the lion's share of hit R&B and soul records in the mid-60s and be able to cross over into the pop charts as well, Chess caught wind of this and decided to copy what Motown was doing and change it slightly, but anyone can tell itself was one by Jackie Ross, which was a big hit for them in 1964, was a complete ripoff of My Guy That Mary Wells which came out some months prior to the release of that song. And Rescue Me by Fontella Bass undeniably also had a very similar sound that closely resembled Motown from the bass line to the drums and the horn parts. And that record would also influence Rita Franklin as well. Um, The biggest commercial hit artist on chess during this period was Billy Stewart, who had four singles on the pop charts and several on the R&B charts. The band on these singles... Included Pete Cozy and Gerald Sims on guitar, Leonard Caston on piano, and Sonny Thompson on organ, and Louis Satterfield and Maurice White on bass and drums. Another big artist on chess was a group called the Dells, and they had some really huge hits in the late 60s with remakes of songs they did in the 50s and uh, in mid 60s. 
and uh you know they're one of the last hit artists you know that were specializing in chicago soul you know sign chess because um one of the brothers died in 1969 and the label soon folded after that so that concludes part two of episode number 41 of my 60 music podcast the millennial throwback machine I'm Sam Williams, and if you like, if you found the information I talked about about Chicago Soul and that whole history behind that intre- uh, interesting, and you want to, um, and you want to tell me all about that, you can email me at samltwilliamicloud.com. Or if you found information and you learned some really cool facts about uh, Major Lance and uh, Curtis Mayfield, and you know, and the specific song I talked about this week, you can email me at sam. LTWillieIcloud.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at iHeartOldies and check out more of my original music at SamLewisMusic.net. Now, I want to remind you guys of a couple things before I close out this episode. Uh, one of them is that I have my own merchandise store for this podcast. I have my own Redbubble store for it. And if you want to go check that out and get something from it, the link to that is in the description of this episode, so you can just click on that. And uh, let me know what you think of the items at the store, if they're too expensive for you, if they're just about right. And uh, also, let me know what you think of the logo as well. Also, don't forget to email me when you purchase an item from the store and send me a picture of it and tell me how much you love the show. I really appreciate that. Um, also, uh, if I'm just going to also remind everybody that since I only use a small clip of the song in the beginning of the show, if you want to check out the full version of the song I talked about in e- each week for my podcast, you can always click on the YouTube link in the description of this episode so that way you guys can listen to the full version of it. Um, but yeah, so also I have a very, I'm going to a really amazing show uh, next week. I'm going to be seeing Frankie Valley at the Savant Theater. That's going to be one hell of a show. I'm really excited for that. So I'll tell you guys how how the show went, what I thought of his performance, because I think it's going to be a good one. I'm definitely excited for it. So that's uh, it's either I'm either going to go this Thursday or this Friday. I'm still trying to decide which one. So either way, so I'm very excited for that show, and uh, I'll let you know, um, you know how that goes and everything. And yeah, so. Uh, I might do a song by him next week, too, in this group, The Four Seasons. So, anyway, so I'm Sam Williams, and uh, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, the elites. Key things, Rudy. Really.